All right. Welcome back to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry, and today's episode is Book of Mormon Translation. Topics we'll discuss today, Joseph Smith's interactions with the angel Moroni, obtaining the gold plates, issues related to the gold plates, the Searstone translation method, and some theories on Book of Mormon translation. These topics were very significant in my faith crisis, probably at the top. Book of Abraham, probably number one, and the issues today, probably number two. This had significant impact on me losing my beliefs in the traditional narrative, but also some of the things we'll talk about today in my faith reconstruction helped me gain a different, but still one of faith, I believe, a faithful view of Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the Restoration. So with that, let's get into it. I first learned about the Searstone in Hat translation method from a South Park episode. That episode originally aired in 2003. I think I probably saw it a few years after that in a rerun. And I had always known peripherally about Joseph Smith's treasure seeking and Searstone, but I always assumed it was an anti-Mormon lie. I thought there was no basis in it. And I was quite surprised that I was learning actual church history from a South Park episode. The church has made a lot of strides since then. They came out with the Gospel Topics essay in 2013 on, on Book of Mormon translation, and then released the pictures of the famous chocolate-colored seer stone in 2015 that, that Joseph used to translate most of the Book of Mormon. Kids are learning this in primary lessons. We're talking about it in church. It's being integrated into our curriculum. It's in the new historical novel Saints that we're going to go over today. So in another 10 years, the, the shock value of this is going to be a big so what. And I am so glad because it did come as a surprise to me. And I think the shock value was half of the impact on me and to others in my generation, maybe. There's still some major issues that we're going to talk about today, but the shock value of understanding the translation method to be something else that seems a lot more cleaner, and then learning these facts from anti-Mormon sources or from critical sources, and then having them verified, that feeling of trust, that shock value is going to be gone. So good job, church. So there was a thing somewhat common in Joseph Smith's day in frontier America called treasure seeking or glass looking or money digging. And the way it would be done would be someone would have a seer stone a rock that they had said had magical properties, they would put this seer stone into a hat, put their head into a hat to block out the light, look into the seer stone, and they would say that they could see objects in it. And usually it would be treasure related. So there's kind of folklore that maybe pirates, Spanish pirates came and they had gold that they had looted somewhere and they were burying this treasure in different spots to come back and get it. And then maybe they die on, out on the seas and never come back. So there's an idea that there's various hidden treasure here and, here and there in frontier America. People took this seriously and they actually employed people. And Joseph Smith was actually employed to do this. They would hire someone who was known for being competent in this area, and they would do the seer stone thing and look in it and tell you where to dig for treasure. So they would hire a bunch of people and dig. Usually the way the con would go would be you dig and dig and dig, and then the person looking in the seer stone would say, okay, keep digging, you're almost there. And then, oh, this the treasure sunk further lower, you missed it. And so no one would ever get the treasure. Also, along with this folklore, there was usually a treasure guardian that was associated with the treasure and this was a ghost or spirit or sometimes an animal like a dog or a frog or lizard or snake. And you've seen the hobbit, the dragon smog there that's guarding that gold under the mountain. That's a classic treasure guardian concept right there, that dragon smog. The treasure guardian is usually associated with doing kind of trickster things where they give you riddles to see if you're, if you're like worthy to get the treasure and they're blocking you from getting it, and they're having you go through impossible tasks, and, and you never get the treasure. Joseph Smith was arrested for this March 20, 1826. So timeline is, he's first visited by Moroni in 1823, and then he gets the gold plates in 1827. So this is in that interim time period. March 20, 1826, he's arrested with a charge of disorderly conduct or being a glass looker. And this comes out of that court case. 
Prisoner Joseph Smith examined, says that he came from the town of Palmyra and had been at the house of Josiah Stoll in Bainbridge most of the time since, had small part of time been employed in looking for mines, but the major part had been employed by said Stoll on his farm and going to school. That he had a certain stone which he had occasionally looked at to determine where hidden treasures in the bowels of the earth were, that he professed to tell in this manner where gold mines were a distance underground, and had looked for Mr. Stoll several times and had informed him where he could find these treasures, and Mr. Stoll had been engaged in digging for them. That at Palmyra he pretended to tell by looking at this stone where coined money was buried in Pennsylvania, and while at Palmyra had frequently ascertained in that way where lost property was of various kinds that he had occasionally been in the habit of looking through this stone to find lost property for three years, but of late had pretty much given it up on account of its injuring his health, especially if his eyes made them sore, that he did not solicit business of this kind and had always rather declined having anything to do with this business. I think nearly all faithful LDS scholars, serious scholars, acknowledge that this is legitimate, this is a thing, this is kind of what Joseph Smith was doing through his teenage years, and Joseph himself admits that he had immaturity and he needed to repent of his sins. And I think this is likely part of what he was talking about. Okay, now let's look at the Clean's official story of how Joseph Smith interacted with Moroni. In the Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith history, it's the same account that the 1838 official version of the first vision comes in. So, the night of September 21, 1823, Angel Moroni appears to Joseph and told him about the gold plates in the Book of Mormon and that he was chosen to translate the record. The next day, Joseph went to the Hill Cumorah, found the spot, dug a little, found a stone box, pried it open, and saw the plates. Verse 53, I made an attempt to take them out, but was forbidden by the messenger and was again informed that the time for bringing them forth had not yet arrived. Neither would it until four years from that time, but he told me that I should come to that place precisely in one year from that time, and that he would there meet with me, and that I should continue to do so until the time should come for obtaining the plates. Verse 54, Accordingly, as, as I had been commanded, I went at the end of each year, and at each time I found the same messenger there, and received instruction and intelligence from him at each of our interviews, respecting what the Lord was going to do, and how and in what manner his kingdom was to be conducted in the last days. Okay, let me get my reading glasses out. We're going to read some from D. Michael Quinn's great book, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. This came out in the 80s. D. Michael Quinn is a believing scholar. He was a professor at BYU in the 80s. He wrote this book, and it was not received very well. He was excommunicated in 1993. He believes in Book of Mormon historicity. I think he has a pretty nuanced testimony of the Book of Mormon, but he believes that it's an actual ancient record. He believes that uh, Angel Moroni is a real angel and that visited Joseph Smith. But his research showed that there's a lot more to the story maybe that we weren't telling. And it really didn't get much traction until others like Richard Bushman kind of made it more mainstream and more accessible to people. And then by the 2000s, it was kind of being more acknowledged by our LDS scholars and then finally in 2013, I think, is when the church really got on board and addressed this and really started opening things up. D. Michael Quinn says, All the early reports of Joseph Smith talking about the visit of Angel, the very first visit to Angel Moroni was as a dream. He gives five or six quotes, including from Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery referencing a dream. And it wasn't until this official version that they kind of shifted it into a visitation. And then where it gets really interesting is when Joseph Smith, the next day, goes to the Hill Cumorah to get the gold plates. According to Willard Chase's 1833 affidavit, he saw in the box something like a toad which soon assumed the appearance of a man and struck him on the side of his head. And then from Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery's account, the first published history of early Mormonism, sketched a folk magic context for the events of September 22, 1823 on the hill. He had heard of the power of enchantment and a thousand like stories which held the hidden treasures of the earth. Cowdery's report that Smith was prevented from obtaining the gold treasure by a thrice-repeated shock that was produced upon his system echoed treasure folklore of the 1820s that treasure seekers could be instantaneously struck without attaining their object as with an electric shock. Then from Benjamin Saunders, I heard Joe tell my mother and sister how he procured the plates. He said he was directed by an angel 
where it was. He went in the night to get the plates. When he took the plates, there was something down near the box that looked some like a toad that rose up into a man which forbid him to take the plates. He told his story just as earnestly as anyone could. He seemed to believe all he said. And then D. Michael Quinn says, Saunders' reference to the night indicates that the first three sentences of his account probably describe Smith's obtaining the plates in 1827 and that the rest of his statement refers to the daytime discovery of the plates in 1823. Okay, so Joseph doesn't get the plates the first year, and then he goes back the next year. Although absent from Smith's presently available first-person narratives, both early Mormon and non-Mormon sources agree that on September 22, 1823, Moroni required Smith to bring his oldest brother Alvin to the hill the following year in order to obtain the gold plates. About ten years later, one of Smith's devout followers, Joseph Knight, recorded Smith's relating that the following dialogue occurred on the hill in 1823. Joseph says, when can I have it? The answer was the 22nd day of September, next, if you bring the right person with you. Joseph says, who is the right person? The answer was your oldest brother. The Smith's non-Mormon Palmyra neighbor, Willard Chase, reported in 1833. He then inquired when he could have them, and was answered thus, come one year from this day and bring with you your oldest brother and you shall have them. This spirit, he said, was the spirit of the prophet who wrote this book and who was sent to Joseph Smith to make known these things to him. Nearly 40 years later, Fayette Lapham remembered that Smith's father told him in 1830 that Joseph asked when he could have them, and the answer was, come in one year from this time and bring your oldest brother with you, then you may have them. During that year, it so happened that his oldest brother died. Another quote from Lorenzo Saunders, At the end of the time, he went to the place to get the plates. The angel asked where his brother was. I told him he was dead. Fayette Lapham recalled the story as Joseph repaired to the place again and was told by the man who still guarded the treasure that, insomuch as he could not bring his oldest brother, he could not have the treasure yet. So when I was reading this, I kind of had a cynical perspective. You know, I had some dark moments during my faith deconstruction phase. But I kind of had a cynical thought that, of course, Joseph Smith is going to tell everybody that Angel Moroni told him to bring his brother Alvin because Alvin was already dead, and so that would be his excuse. But it seems like the Alvin story came first, and that it actually seems authentic and real because this is a really interesting aspect of this. After Joseph went back the second year to get the gold plates at the Hill Camorra, there was a big uproar in Palmyra, and Joseph Smith Sr., took out an ad in the Palmyra newspaper denying the rumors that Joseph Smith, his son, or that their family had dug up the bones of their dead son, Alvin, to take them with him to this Hilcomora thing, because it was just kind of like circulating that Joseph needed his brother, and what what is he going to do? Like, it appears that Joseph's in a real conundrum. It does appear that he's being sincere in following these instructions that he felt were coming externally, that what he needed to do to obtain the plates. So Joseph is striking out year after year, and there's not much that we know about the 1825 and 1826 visits, but it appears that there's this instruction that he needs to bring the right person and he keeps doing it wrong. And in 1826, he sees in his seerstone Emma. And so he gets the idea that the right person to bring with him is Emma. And then he comes again in the night in 1827 with Emma and he gets the gold plates. And to add to this whole treasure guardian lore is the idea that Captain Kidd was a well-known pirate and person that was kind of a hero in this genre. And in one of the stories, Captain Kidd is hanging out on the island Comoros that has the city of Moroni on it. And it, there's questionable whether or not that was on a map that Joseph Smith might have had access to. But that's another question, and it could be it could very well be parallelomania. There's parallelomania on both sides of this. Some people think Nahum might be parallelomania. Some people think some of the Book of Mormon Central articles that they show a name in the Book of Mormon and how it kind of have he, how it has Hebrew roots and is maybe foretelling what this person is doing in the Book of Mormon. Some people think that kind of work is compelling, and some people think it kind of sounds like parallelomania. And there's parallelomania on the critical side of this as well. So we have this 1838 official version, and then we have this version that D. Michael Quinn is showing us from all the original sources that I think is becoming 
more and more mainstream in how LDS scholars are viewing this. Now let's look at how the historical novel Saints handled this. Stephen Harper is a BYU professor, and he is working as the lead historian for the Saints production. And he spoke at Fair Mormon about how the historians on his committee has kind of had some back and forth with the Brethren and the Quorum of the Twelve about what should be in Saints and what shouldn't be in, kind of some negotiation. From a cynical view, you could view that as the church suppressing information, but how I view this is that I'm sure there are members of the 12 who are, who've read all this information and maybe have a more nuanced take on it. And then there are some who read this and think, no, that just doesn't jive with my worldview. And I think that's wrong. And I think that this clean 1838 version that I've always known is true. And so I think there's some negotiation and some give and take. And so I just view that as a kind of a human process and not like a cynical, like suppressing information. Okay, so from Saints, Joseph thought about the plates as he walked. Even though he knew they were sacred, it was hard for him to resist wondering how much they were worth. He had heard tales of hidden treasures protected by guardian spirits, but Moroni and the plates he described were different from these stories. Moroni was a heavenly messenger appointed by God to deliver the record safely to his chosen seer. Looking inside, Joseph saw the gold plate, seer stones, and breastplate. The plates were covered with ancient writing. A portion of the plates also appeared to be sealed and no one else could read it. Astonished, Joseph wondered again how much the plates were worth. He reached for them and felt a shock pulse through him. He jerked his hand back, but then reached for the plates twice more and was shocked each time. Why can I not obtain this book, he cried out, because you have not kept the commandments of the Lord, said a voice nearby. Joseph turned and saw Moroni. Moroni then tells him to keep the commandments and that he's not ready yet. And then Joseph asked, when could he have the plates? The 22nd of day of September next, Moroni said, if you bring the right person with you. Who is the right person, Joseph asked, your oldest brother. The next year, when the day finally came to return to the hill, Joseph went alone. Without Alvin, he was unsure if the Lord would trust him with the plates. But he thought he could keep every commandment the Lord had given him as his brother had counseled. Moroni's instructions for retrieving the plates were clear. You must take them into your hands and go straight into the house without delay, the angel had said, and lock them up. At the hill, Joseph pried up the rock, reached into the stone box, and lifted out the plates. A thought then crossed his mind. The other items in the box were valuable and ought to be hidden before he went home. He set the plates down and turned to cover the box, but when he returned to the plates, they were gone. Alarmed, he fell to his knees and pleaded to know where they were. Moroni appeared and told Joseph that he had failed to follow directions again. Not only had he set the plates down before safely securing them, he had also let them out of his sight. You read the official 1838 version, then you read the D. Michael Quinn version, and then you read the Saints version, and I really give kudos to Stephen Harper and his team. I think he tried to bring in the treasure-seeking elements. He, they said straight up that Joseph had this guardian spirit background in his mind, and then they have the shock, and then they have Moroni kind of a little bit acting like the trickster that he seems more in the in the original sources because he's saying bring the right person and and it's alvin and then later on he's ripping the plates away over what seems like maybe is not the biggest deal like joseph looks away for a second and and he's taking the plates away it kind of give you the treasure seeking treasure guardian elements but then also give you a more traditional prophet angel view and so I think that's fine. I think this is a great attempt at bringing us closer to, you know, maybe the real history, but also giving us a, another way of interpreting some of these things faithfully. And I think in another generation, maybe there'll be another version of this and it'll get a little bit closer to the treasure seeking thing. This is how things work. It's going to have to be a slow change, but this is a great step. Okay, so Joseph Smith has the plates. There are a lot of witnesses to the plates. There are the three witnesses, which is a spiritual witness event. There's the eight witnesses, which is a more of a physical witness event. And then there are many other witnesses, some even not friendly sources, like we'll read one of them. I think the witnesses to the gold plates are a very compelling argument to make for the traditional view of Book of Mormon historicity and the clean version of our understanding of this story. If you listen to faithful LDS scholars Richard Lloyd Anderson and Daniel Peterson, 
talk about the witnesses. They seemed solid as a rock. They gave consistent testimony, and some seemed to stick to their testimony even when they had motivation to recant, and they seemed very legit. Then you read Dan Vogel and other critical sources about the witnesses, and you get a little bit different story. They seem pretty sketchy. You don't know if they're talking about spiritualized or physicalized. Many of them left the church. Many of them, many of them hooked up with James Strang and gave similar witnesses for him. Then you read Richard Bushman, and he's kind of somewhere in the middle. He'll he'll give you both sides and says say it's kind of up to your, your own face how you view this. And I think that's like all the other issues here. You're going to have very conservative sources that are going to try to bias you one way, or not tr- attempt to bias you, but just naturally have their own bias. And then critical sources that are going to have bias in the other direction. And then you just have to sort it out with your own intellect and the Holy Ghost. The plates didn't seem to act like a naturalistic object, though. Joseph was commanded not to show anyone. They required special spiritual power to see them. In DNC 17.5, says, You shall testify that you have seen them, even as my servant Joseph Smith Jr. has seen them, for it is by my power that he has seen them, and it is because he had faith. The plates are not used in the translation. They're either folded up off to the side or under a napkin, or they're hidden away in the woods. Moroni is giving them and taking them back. And even the eight witness event where they felt and saw the gold plates seemed to have a spiritual bent to it. About the eight witness event, Lucy Smith said, they left the house and went out to the woods, retired to the grove without the plates, where they were delivered by one of the ancient Nephites. So they went out to the woods to have this eight witness event, and they didn't have the plates, but while they were there, the angel came and delivered them. Now let's get into a really interesting theory, the Antaves materialization of the plates theory. So Richard Bushman kind of threw a challenge down to some of his scholarly friends to come up with a different way to look at the gold plates and the Joseph Smith story that weren't the two traditional views. One is the faithful LDS view, which is that it's exactly as the traditional narrative says it was. And then the other view is that Joseph was a fraud or delusional. Is there any way to look at it besides these two binary views? So is it possible to accept the evidence for the materiality of what Joseph Smith presented to others as the plates, accept Joseph Smith's sincerity in believing that this object was in fact the sacred Nephite golden plates, accept Joseph Smith as a mentally healthy, non-delusional person, yet not believe, i.e. not think that Joseph Smith actually had ancient gold plates. And Antave's logic here, the first clue is that Joseph seemed to view receiving or obtaining the record as a command or as something requiring action. He needed to do something to make that happen. She then points to the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, where they take the bread and the wine and they say a prayer and they believe that it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ not symbolically, like we believe in our church, but that it physically transforms and becomes the actual body and blood. Then she looks at, in the LDS tradition, our consecrated oil. We take a regular natural object, olive oil, and consecrate it, and then it becomes something that's no longer olive oil. It now becomes consecrated oil that has a specific spiritual purpose. She also pointed out the brother Jared who in the Book of Mormon took the stones, a natural object, and then had the Lord touch them and transform them into something of a different purpose. So her theory is that Joseph Smith believed that he needed to make the plates happen, and that there's a legitimate religious belief that you can present physical, natural objects to God, and God can transform them into something different, something into a spiritual object. And she believes that that's what Joseph Smith did, that he made his own plates, Dan Vogel talks a lot about Joseph Smith making tin plates. I'm still to this day not totally sure. I think it's maybe 70-30. 70% that Joseph made plates in this manner, and 30% that there never were any plates, and people just, for some reason, always saw them spiritually. I'm not sure, but I think there's reasonable evidence that there's physical plates, and so I'll go with it. So Taze believes that Joseph presented these plates to God to have him consecrate them, and actually turn them into the ancient Nephite record. 
And she believes that he believes that that happened. And one of the quotes that she thinks gives insight into this is how Joseph was so excited after the three witnesses obtained the same vision of the plates. The quote, Father, Mother, exclamation point, you do not know how happy I am. The Lord has caused the plates to be shown to three more besides me who have also seen an angel and also will testify to the truth of what I have said, for they know for themselves and that I do not go about to deceive the people. I do feel as though I was relieved of a dreadful burden, which was almost too much for me to endure. It does rejoice my soul that I am not any longer to be entirely alone in the world. So I think that's a valid point that he does seem pretty sincere that now others are buying into the same vision, spiritual vision that he has, and that this is becoming real. Then I kind of added my own spin on this when I wrote about it in a blog post. Josiah Stoll, in another one of Joseph Smith's trials, gave this really interesting quote that Smith, the prisoner, went in the night and brought the Bible, as Smith said, witness saw a corner of it. It resembled a stone of a greenish cast, should judge it to have been about one foot square and six inches thick. He would not let it be seen by anyone. The Lord had commanded him not. It was unknown to Smith that witness saw a corner of the Bible, so called by Smith. Told the witness the leaves were of gold. There were written characters on the leaves. Prisoner was commanded to translate the same by the Lord. So Josiah Stoll is there at the Smith's home the night that Joseph leaves with Emma to go get the plates and they come home early in the morning and he's there in the morning and he snuck a peek of the gold plates as Joseph came in the house and he said they resembled a stone of a greenish cast. My mind has been spinning about this and then I read the Antaves materialization theory. And then I kind of put that together and wonder if Joseph found an actual Native American artifact on the Hill Camorra and it had some kind of etchings or engravings on them. And then maybe later on, he tacked on some tin plates to go along with it. Maybe Joseph believed that that stone was the core of the ancient record. Interesting theory. I don't know. I'd probably take a more simple view of it, but I think this is a very reasonable theory. And I would say, I don't think that this is true, like in an absolute sense, that God did convert the plates that Joe Smith presented into an actual Nephite record that's historically true. I wouldn't go there, but I think that's a plausible way to look at it for a faithful LDS. And I think even more plausible would be to look at it that Joseph Smith believed that this was happening, even though in an absolute sense it wasn't. And then that you might come back and say, well, that means that he's delusional. And so I agree that if it's not actual ancient gold plates, then I think there is some level of fraud or delusion involved. And I'll give my theory a little bit later. So in 1827, Joseph receives the gold plates. In December, he and Emma moved to Harmony, Pennsylvania. In April to June, Joseph starts translating the first 116 pages, and then, of course, Martin loses them. In July of 1828, Joseph is severely chastised, and the plates and the Urim and Thummim were taken away. A note on the Urim and Thummim, there are two objects. There are the Nephite spectacles that came with the gold plates, and then they were taken back, and then he used the seer stone from then on. But both the Nephite Spectacles and the Seer Stone are both referred to as the Urim of Thummim. So if people freak out and say, I thought the Book of Mormon was translated through the Urim and Thummim, they're correct in that the Nephite Spectacles were not used, but they're technically incorrect in that they refer to the Seer Stone as the Urim and Thummim also. And if you go to the Doctrine and Covenants and look at the section headings, some of them say this revelation was given through the Urim and Thummim. And a lot of those are the seer stone if it's in the time period after the Nephite spectacles were taken away. Okay, so then he gets the gold plates back. And February to March, he starts translating again with Emma as a scribe. They don't get very far. And then Oliver shows up in April 1829. And they knock out the entire Book of Mormon in about 90 days from April to June 1829. They start off in Mosiah. They start where they left off when the 116 pages were lost. They keep going through the end of the book, and then they restart with Nephi through 2 Nephi, Jacob, and those small books and end there. The whole story of the lost 116 pages and the small plates of Nephi being miraculously preserved in a way to make up for this lost 116 pages for someone going through a faith crisis and putting items on their shelf, this is just one more item that just feels like it's too convenient of a story. It's a challenge to the traditional view. Okay, let's talk about Oliver Cowdery's divining rod for a minute. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 8 and section 9, 
Oliver Cowdery is giving a revelation from God that is given through Joseph Smith. We're going to go through the original version of this, which is from the Book of Commandments. You have another gift, which is the gift of working with the rod. Behold, it has told you things. Behold, there is no other power save God that can cause this rod of nature to work in your hands, for it is the work of God. And therefore, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means, that will I grant unto you. Oliver Cowdery's gift of working with the rod of nature. This is referring to Oliver Cowdery's divining rod. Oliver Cowdery had a divining rod. A divining rod was an object similar to a seer stone that kind of had magical elements to it, but people in Joseph Smith's day believed were legitimate and that certain people had a competency with a divining rod. This is another thing the church is being more open about. There's an article on the church's website where you can read all about this, and they acknowledge that this is referring to Oliver Cowdery's divining rod. And in the Gospel Doctrine Manual, teachers are encouraged to go to this Revelations in Context article to give more context about this section in the Doctrine and Covenants. So it's not anything we're trying to hide anymore. Okay, let's go on. Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. Oliver Cowdery was commanded to take a shot at translating the Book of Mormon using his divining rod. And then he has chastised, and the reason he's chastised is that he kind of just waited for an answer from God. He didn't push anything out. Behold, you have not understood, you have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. Unlike Brother of Jared, he just sat there and waited for something. He just sat there and waited for a revelation. Brother of Jared came up with the solution. He presented the Lord with the stones and said, here's what I want you to do. Oliver Cowdery, nothing. He didn't have anything to translate. He had no words that he was going for. And so he was chastised by God. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right, but if it not be right, you shall have no such feelings. But you shall have a stupor of thought that you shall cause that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. And I think this is great pragmatic advice in a church is true, pragmatic gospel kind of thing. Listen to your listen to the Holy Ghost inside you, and when your ideas are right, they're confirmed, and when they're not, you kind of get that stupor of thought. But in this specific context, this was specific instructions to Oliver Cowdery on how to translate the Book of Mormon. And I think this probably gives us the most important insight into the translation process. If you think about it, what would it mean to study it out? What would it mean to study out a Book of Mormon translation in your mind? And then what would it mean to ask God if it's right? And if you think about a divining rod, that is kind of how it would work. A divining rod is only a yes or no thing. It jumps when you get to the water, and then it's still when there's no water. So a divining rod would be a binary on-off feedback loop. This is also some really messy history, and it really blows your mind to think about it because I think it's so different than the traditional view but I think this is the most important insight that we have into the translation process. Now let's get into Royal Skousen's work. He and Stanford Carmack are doing work on the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon and providing a lot of insights. They are clearly showing that the Book of Mormon is a dictated text. It was dictated about 3,000 words a day during that three-month time period. He believes they dictated for about six hours a day of continuous dictation with breaks. I think that may be on the high side. I think it could be as low as three or four, maybe high of six hours. And I think that's important because I'll come back to my model of how I think the Book of Mormon was created in a minute. The plates are not directly used. They're wrapped up either on the table or hidden somewhere else. Royal Skousen believes that the Searstone method was used for the entire Book of Mormon translation. He believes that Joseph Smith was viewing the English text on the seer stone and that he would dictate in clumps of 20 to 30 words at a time. So he would see 20 to 30 words on the seer stone. He would dictate them. And then the scribe, usually Oliver, would read them back. And then if it's okay, they go on to the next one. Proper names would commonly be spelled out. This is another evidence that Joseph is reading this because he's spelling out proper names. And he gives this interesting story where the name Coriantumr is in there. The first time it's spelled wrong, and it's crossed out and spelled correctly. And then the second time, 
At the end, Oliver does this R, Coriantumr, he does the last R in a big flare. And Royal says, it's kind of like Oliver saying, so there, Joseph, stick it. You know, like, how could have I ever spelled that right in the first place? I love listening to Royal Skousen talk about the Book of Mormon. I could listen to him all day. It's very fascinating, the insights that he has about the Book of Mormon. And the most important insight that he and Stanford Carmack are providing is related to early modern English in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, or especially the original, it's had a lot of cleanup since then, so it's hard to tell now. But the Book of Mormon had a lot of bad grammar in the original version. One example is them days, okay? So that sounds really hickish, and there's a lot of other bad grammar. But what Royal Skousen and Stanford Carmack are saying is that it's not bad grammar, it's 1500s English, and that them days is an actual academic usage of intelligent, properly speaking people in the 1500s, and that the English language changed a lot. And what's appropriate and grammatically correct in 1500 and 1600 is now sounding hickish and bad grammar in Joseph Smith's day. And he believes that all of the instances where there's bad grammar, it's not because of Joseph Smith's lack of education, it's because it's actually early modern English. We talked the last time about Royal Skousen's view that this was a creative and cultural translation. He views the Book of Mormon as a historical core, but greatly expanded. And all of the modern content that I gave last time in the Book of Mormon content episode, he would agree with me that this is not ancient, but he would say that this is being inserted by someone in the 1500s, not someone in 1830. He's responding to that quote from Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell was critical of the Book of Mormon, and he said this about the Book of Mormon. It contains every era and almost every truth discussed in New York for the last 10 years. He decides all the great controversies, infant baptism, ordination, the Trinity, regeneration, repentance, justification, the fall of man, the atonement, transubstantiation, fasting, penance, church government, religious experience, the call to the ministry, the general resurrection, eternal punishment, who may baptize, and even the question of Freemasonry, Republican government, and the rights of man. Alexander Campbell knew the Book of Mormon pretty well, right? These are a lot of the things that we noticed in the last episode that we talked about and that a lot of LDS scholars are acknowledging might have come from an expansion from a modern uh, translator. Well, Royal Skousen agrees basically with the whole thing, but he's saying, Alexander Campbell, you got it three centuries off. And he's placing all of these things as being perfect for a 16th century environment. He's also looking at some of the stories in the Book of Mormon, like, Abinadi burned at the stake or the tragedy in Ammonihah of people being burned with their scriptures. And he's saying, this is someone from the 1500s writing this. This is what they did to heretics in the 16th century. They burned them with their scriptures. I know Royal Skousen believes in Book of Mormon historicity, but I got to say when I listen to him a lot, I almost wonder if he is not viewing this as historical at all. He seems to talk like this is created almost entirely from somebody in the 1500s as a non-historical doctrinal work. Now, I know he doesn't believe that. I'm not trying to say he does. But observing him and listening to him, he puts an awful lot onto this modern translator who's expanding the text greatly. So the important data points that Royal Skousen is trying to make sense of in his theory is that one... The text is dictated by Joseph Smith. He views Joseph Smith as completely, simply a vessel for the Spirit to put text in the seer stone that he's reading. He believes Joseph Smith had absolutely zero contribution to the text of the Book of Mormon. But then he also sees this modern and humanistic elements that Alexander Campbell noticed and that we talked about last episode. So he's coming up with a theory that it was translated in a humanistic process. In the 16th century, originally when he threw out this theory, he proposed that this was done in the spirit world, and he even identified William Tyndale as someone who might have been on this committee to translate the Book of Mormon, because he's seen the King James intertextuality so clearly that someone like William Tyndale must have been involved. William Tyndale was someone in the 1500s who translated the New Testament into English and who was involved in all these translation issues. And he also sees some more modern grammar and 
vocabulary, which would have been impossible for someone from the 16th century. So he believes this has been updated and massaged by a humanistic translator. I don't think he would say it's by God because he views these as humanistic interventions, but that it's been massaged and updated for Joseph's audience in 1830. So this theory sounds pretty wild, but I would say that I think this is a very common way for a lot of our LDS faithful scholars to view things now. Now let's go to the Blake Osler expansion theory. In 1987, Blake Osler wrote an article in Dialogue on his theory of the Book of Mormon that the Book of Mormon had a historical ancient core, but that had been expanded greatly by Joseph Smith. He sees both ancient and modern content in the Book of Mormon. And a good illustration is King Benjamin's address. The ancient content, he sees some distinctly ancient elements in the call for the nation to gather to witness the coronation of a king and this covenant renewal process. He thinks that this is following a form in ancient Hebrew that is a real specific model for a new king and for a covenant renewal. He thinks this is the kind of thing that only a scholar in ancient Hebrew would know, and Joseph Smith would not know this, and he sees this as clear evidence as it being ancient. I kind of think this is another one of those parallelomania things, but some people view this as being very compelling, that the Book of Mormon contains some ancient elements. But then Blake Osler also saw modern elements, just like we talked about in the last episode. King Benjamin's address is mirroring a 19th century revival camp scene. The content of the King Benjamin's address had some clearly modern Protestant, especially Methodist teaching and born-again style teaching of Jesus Christ. And so Blake Osler views that portion as being impossible for an ancient to speak that way, and he clearly sees that as a modern addition. Osler also views the fact that Joseph Smith went back and edited a lot of the Book of Mormon. There were substantial edits, even to the point that it made doctrinal impact. And so he views that as evidence that Joseph didn't treat the text as though it were some dictated text where he was simply a vessel for God to speak in a God-breathed way, this ancient record, ancient translation. So if Joseph didn't view it that way, then there must be something else going on. He compared what Joseph was doing with this expansion, for example, to what the author of John was doing. And we've mentioned this, we'll talk about more in the New Testament episode, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke came first. And it had kind of a different view of Jesus. And then John came 30 years later, towards the end of the first century, and it had a completely new doctrinal understanding of Jesus. The author of John wasn't a firsthand witness of these events. All he had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the gift of the Holy Ghost to interpret Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the author of John went back and expanded and put in new doctrine and put in new interpretations of these different things that Jesus did in the Gospels. And so Blake Osler is saying, this is a common way of doing scripture. This is what prophets do. This is what people that are authorized by the Holy Ghost to do scripture do when they're writing scripture. They take something and then they expand it through the Holy Ghost. The author of John did that, and then Joseph Smith did that in a very similar way. He believes that it explains the anachronisms like horse and cow. He says that there wasn't any horse, there wasn't any cows. So Joseph Smith must have been kind of a loose translation and putting in his own words, and this is how he views it. He rejects the Skousen idea that the Book of Mormon is the dictated text. In a minute, I'll try to harmonize both these. Blake Osler doesn't view the text as, as dictated he views Joseph Smith as bringing forth the text through his mind. And I think people that take Osler's expansion theory can take it in a little minor way, like most all of it was ancient, and every now and then Joseph is injecting a New Testament verse or phrase or modifying Isaiah somehow. Or you could take it that the historical core of the Book of Mormon is hardly anything, maybe like Omni, you know? those small books at the end of the small plates, maybe Omni was the historical core. And then Mosiah and Alma, you have the, the historical core broadly expanded. That's maybe what is the expanded text looks like. So you can take the and apply it to be that Joseph was doing a lot or a little. And Blake Osler, I think, is maybe in between those two, where he says that there's sections that are ancient and sections that are expanded in modern. 
And this was not a popular theory among faithful LDS when this first came out and farms really cracked back on it. And I'll read this quote, advocates of the expansion theory must admit that the theory compromises the Book of Mormon as history, but they defend that move by claiming that its value as theology remains undiminished. Quoting Osler's dialogue article, the Book of Mormon is not a history and was not meant to be. It is a revelation of the experiences of God and the salvation history of an ancient people. And the Farms article goes on, but that is trying to eat your cake and have it too. They say Joseph Smith's claims are true, they just are not historically true. And while neither the term salvation history nor the concept can be found in scripture or in the writings of the modern prophets, we are asked to borrow this sophistry from non-LDS theology to grease the wheels of the expansion theory. And now fast forward 30 years, and the conservative scholars are latching onto the Osler expansion theory, and it's kind of the most common theory today. And we might have history repeating itself with Stephen Smoot cracking on the non-historical but faithful view of the Book of Mormon, using the exact same logic that the faithful scholars used to crack on the Osler expansion theory 30 years ago. So those are the two main theories today, the Skousen 16th century model and the Blake Osler Joseph Smith expansion model. And I think your very best LDS scholars today are acknowledging that the anachronisms like Horace and Steele and the modern content like the New Testament intertextuality both point to a very humanistic and loose translation or an expanded translation from a modern humanistic source. And so these are the two ways to look at it. One of them pushing it back to the 16th century, and then Joseph Smith purely as a vessel to produce that text, and then Blake Osler putting that humanistic expansion on Joseph Smith. And I think from a theological standpoint that it really should be Joseph Smith expanding the text. He's the prophet of the restoration, if you're putting all this theological prophetic content on a human, it doesn't make sense that it would be anybody but Joseph Smith since he's the prophet of the restoration. One more piece of research before I get to my theory, and that's from William Davis, who published a book, Visions in a Seerstone, this year. In this, his main point is that Joseph Smith dictated the text of the Book of Mormon. He talks about the same study it out process that I talked about before, and he sees that Joseph Smith is doing a long studied out process and that he essentially memorized most of what he was going to do through the seer stone. And then he used this technique called heads where you come to a new section and then you start your section with identifying seven or eight heads or headers that you're going to come to next. And then you kind of blow out each of these heads in detail. It's basically a memorization technique for preaching long sermons and it being able to provide the content that you organized. And I kind of wish that I did my podcast before this book came out because now it's going to feel like I'm stealing William Davis's theory because it's largely what I've come to as my own theory, except for this new heads memorization concept. Okay, so here's how I see it. I think Joseph Smith coming out of the first vision believed he had a duty and an important work to do. Part of that was to bring forth ancient scripture. I think he had a dream in 1823 that was a real spiritual experience to him where he received information on what he needed to do. And then I think he went to the Hill Camorra and had spiritual interactions with the angel Moroni in a way that Joseph Smith viewed this at the beginning as a treasure seeker guardian kind of thing where angel Moroni might have been more of an antagonist than a, than a helper because it's coming out of his treasure seeking folklore. And then I think over time that he kind of grew out of that and spiritually matured and viewed the angel Moroni more as the ancient Nephi prophet angel instead of a treasure guardian and started viewing this gold plates as strictly a spiritual record and not something that he might profit from. I think that he believes that just like Antave said, obtaining the record was an action that he had to do, that he had responsibility for. I think he started studying out the message, just like God commanded Oliver Cowdery. I think Joseph had a similar kind of revelation where he believed that God was telling him he needed to study out this story in the Book of Mormon before it's time to reveal it. I think the seer stone 
gave Joseph spiritual confidence that when he was looking into the seer stone, he was truly getting a message from God. And I think that's something that evolved over time from the treasure-seeking con method to a spiritual process. So Joseph Smith has got the Book of Mormon worked out in his head. He's worked on it for years and years. He's maybe done a lot of this intertextuality and studied it with the Bible out and worked on it in his head. And now he's ready to dictate. And I think he viewed dictation as kind of a test to see if he was getting it right. So he would put his head in the hat and look in the seer stone, and now it's go time. That's when the Holy Ghost is working through him, and he is revealing the Word of God through this dictation process. He's revealing about 20 minutes of text a day, so about a sacrament talk a day. And you've given a sacrament talk where you've prepared a ton for it, and then you get up, and, but then when you speak, maybe different words come out. The Holy Ghost takes over, and different words come out, or maybe you say it a little bit differently. Many of us have had this experience giving talks in church where you felt like the Holy Ghost really guided you to say something that was above you. Joseph had many years to study it out, and then when he's doing the dictation process those, those 90 days, he's maybe dictating four or five hours a day, and then maybe he's doing a study it out process, maybe even with Oliver for six or seven hours a day. They're getting it ready, and then when he's ready, he puts his head in the seer stone, and now this is the time that the Holy Ghost is revealing the actual text of the Book of Mormon. And I think this theory works from a very faithful perspective to a more critical perspective. How much you think that God is inspiring those words, and how much spiritual value you attach to those words, even if God is not directly providing the words for Joseph. And I'm doing two things with this podcast and with my blog material. One is I'm sharing my specific view of how I view the restoration and what my testimony is, what I believe in, how I see things very clearly, my take. Then another thing that I'm doing is that I'm broadly explaining a paradigm that someone else could take. And then you have a spectrum. Let's imagine how much God is involved with religion, how much God is involved in inspiring Book of Mormon. You could go from a lot to a little to not at all, and it all fits my paradigm. And so I'd like to address the Brian Hales argument. Brian Hales is addressing different critical theories of the Book of Mormon. Conspiracy theory, Joseph Smith was some kind of mentally unhealthy savant. The Book of Mormon was an automatic writing thing. None of these are very compelling, but the most compelling one is that Joseph did this all through his own intellect, and that's what... Brian Hales addresses with most of his material, and that's what Ted Collister is addressing, and, and a lot of apologists are kind of addressing this, saying, this Book of Mormon is so complex, and Joseph Smith is not educated, and he dictated it in such a short time period, it's just impossible. Where they go is that if Joseph Smith couldn't have done this with his own intellect, then it must be a translation of a historical record. My response to that is, I'm going to put two hats on here. The first hat is someone who takes the inspired but non-historical 19th century viewpoint, but also believes that God is very involved, leading Joseph Smith by the Holy Ghost and putting words in the seer stone. Maybe Joseph is putting a lot of those words himself, but let's say that the Holy Ghost is overriding them and making them more perfect a large percentage of the time to ensure that the Book of Mormon is exactly what God wants. It's not historical, but it's inspired and it's truly above Joseph's intellect. That's my hat number one. Through this viewpoint, I agree. It's impossible. He didn't do it. It's impossible for him to do it. He's not smart enough. The Holy Ghost did guide him and consecrate his effort and fix some of those words and phrases to be more perfect in the seer stone. And then you might ask, well, why would God put a non-historical record in the seer stone for Joseph and not tell him and not explain it? And that's a good question, but honestly, there are a lot of those good questions in the restoration, right? I don't want to sound more critical than I mean to right now, but there are a dozen questions, why would God do this, why would God do that, about the restoration. That question, why would God do that? That's frankly what moved me from a literal believing paradigm into a metaphorical paradigm where God takes a more deist approach and is allowing free agency of humans to manage religion. Those questions over and over again is what moved me into that paradigm. But if you're speaking from a more literalistic paradigm where God is involved, 
I don't think it's fair to ask that question in regards to this Book of Mormon translation. Then on the other side of the spectrum, there's my viewpoint, which may be that God didn't directly guide those words in a God-breathed way, and that his inspiration may be something more like a nudge in the general direction. And in that case, that's a fair question to ask me, how did Joseph Smith do it? And I don't know. It's mysterious. Humans are capable of doing a lot of things. Anytime a first is done in the human history, it has no precedent, and there's probably no precedent for what Joseph Smith did, and it's brilliant and it's genius. I do think that it's within the human experience what he did, but if you disagree, I'm open to that it could be inspired to be above Joseph's level. So if we get down to the nitty-gritty and we're arguing about whether or not it's possible— I'm fine to just concede that and say it's not possible in some ways. The Spirit consecrated his efforts and made the final output truly above his level. But my larger message to, to Brother Collister and Brian Hales is that I think we're a lot more alike than we are different. Let's be on the same team, and we're on God's side, and we're on Joseph Smith's side and the Book of Mormon's side. Please don't call faithful LDS who love the Book of Mormon, and call it scripture. Please don't call us critics because we don't believe it's historical. Richard Bushman said, some years ago, if someone told me the Book of Mormon wasn't historically accurate, that it was some kind of modern creation, I would have thought they were heretical. I wouldn't say that anymore. I think there are faithful Mormons who are unwilling to take a stand on the historicity. I disagree with them. I think it is a historical book, but I recognize that a person can be committed to the gospel in every way and still have questions about the Book of Mormon. I think there are a lot of faithful LDS who view this in a similar way as me. I'm asking you to address me and address those other people as though we were not critics of the Restoration because we believe that we're faithful. Boy, I sound a little bit too much martyr and victim-like right there. Let's get back on topic. So is this humanly possible? Is what Joseph Smith did humanly possible? You probably saw the documentary Free Solo where the guy's rock climbing and he goes to attempt this, and he's like falling each time, and your heart just stops each time he kind of makes this jump and he falls, and you're thinking, dude, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do this for real when you take the ropes off? You're going to die. But he says he just gets in this mode when he's doing it for real, where it just feels like an out-of-body experience where he just goes, and he just nails each movement, hand, hand, foot, foot, hand, foot, knee. And he's climbing it in the perfect way. And what to do next is just jumping into his mind and his fingers are just almost moving outside of his control. And you might think that's a spiritual process that a human couldn't do. I think that's a reasonable take. Humans do things that are incredible. So this is two ways to take it. You can take this as God truly directing Joseph Smith, even though it's not historical, even though Joseph Smith did the study out process and, and it's coming through him. God is improving it, and the Holy Ghost is consecrating it above Joseph's ability. Or you can take this maybe a little bit more humanistic approach where Joseph, Joseph studies it out in his mind, and then he goes to the seer stone, and then he's really connected spiritually, and, and he's taken to a higher level, but it's still through the mind of Joseph Smith in a humanistic process. So now all these questions, was he deluded? Was he a fraud? What's going on? I'm just going to give my own personal view I think that there was probably some level of pious fraud involved. Pious fraud is when someone does things for the right reasons, but does things maybe not completely above board. And our scriptures are full of pious fraud. The Old Testament is full of it. The New Testament is full of it. And even the Doctrine and Covenants, God himself is pulling a little bit of a pious fraud. We'll go over that one in our Book of Abraham episode. I think Joseph had an important work to do. I think he didn't know how to pull it off exactly. I think he made mistakes because of his human weakness, doubting himself and not having confidence that he could pull this off without fudging things a little bit in a pious fraud way. I also think maybe you could say there's a little bit of a deluded element where from Ante's model, he believed that God was consecrating this and maybe that his words actually were ancient Nephite teachings. I think there's probably something to that. He believed in himself. I think maybe he knew he was fudging things a little bit. I think he believed in the gist of what he was doing. I, th I think he probably did believe that there was a true historical ancient core to what he was doing. 
Paul says, whether out of the body or in the body, he doesn't know. And I think there's an element to that where Joseph Smith is wrapped up into the spiritual world so tightly and it's so real to him that the differences between the spiritual world and the physical world, sometimes the lines are blurred. I also think another element of this is that a lot of these clean versions of these stories are produced many, many years later, more than a decade later. And I think sometimes the memory is blurred and you're misremembering some things. And I think that's the reason that some of these original stories get blurred over time. I also think one more element of this is that other people are writing his story and maybe he allows that to happen and lets the fire grow without putting it down. Or sometimes these stories are created and the official versions are cemented and and become official after he's dead. He's obviously not responsible for that. And people that do make these things official are so far removed from the actual history that they're not doing things fraudulently, they're doing things how they see them. So all of these things have contributed into us misunderstanding our own history. Now it's our job as a church to make it right. And we're in the process of that. It's going to be a tough process. It's going to take a generation, maybe a couple generations, but we're moving along and we're doing it. And what I want to make clear also is that I believe that this is an authentic religious experience that is no different from any other religious experience we have in any of our scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, or any other religious tradition. I don't see anything wrong with the Joseph Smith story that invalidates our religion or invalidates his experience or the Book of Mormon. I want to sneak in this quote from Adam Miller, Letters to a Young Mormon. It's a long quote, but it's so good. Joseph translated the Book of Mormon, and then he retranslated the Bible, and then he revealed the Book of Abraham. Then Joseph went back and started again. He never stopped working on his translation of the Bible. Brigham Young even seemed to suggest that if Joseph were still alive, he might try a fresh translation of the Book of Mormon. Joseph always expected more revelations, and translation was one vital name for the hard work of receiving them. Translating scripture is a way of renewing life. Joseph produced the first public translations of the scriptures we now share, but that work is unfinished. Now the task is ours. When you read the scriptures, don't just lay your eyes like stones on the pages. Roll up your sleeves and translate them again. It is not enough for Nephi to have translated Isaiah into Reformed Egyptian or for Joseph to have translated Nephi into King James English. You and I must translate these books again, word by word, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. God wants the whole thing translated once more, and this time he wants it translated into your native tongue, inflected by your native concerns, and written in your native flesh. To be a Mormon is to do once more, on your own small scale, the same kind of work that Joseph did. To succeed, you'll have to pray always. You'll have to study it out in your mind. You'll have to listen to the beating of your heart. You'll have to consult the best books. You'll have to take careful notes. And then you'll have to bring all these raw ingredients to bear on how God wants you to translate the next verse you'll read. When you're reading them right, the scriptures will bring you up short. They'll call you into question. They'll challenge your stories and deflate your pretensions. They'll show you how you've been wrong, and they'll show you how to make things right. The wider you read in Lao Tzu, Shakespeare, Austin, Dogen, Plato, Dante, Krishna, Sappho, Goethe, Confucius, Tolstoy, and Homer, the better off you'll be. The more familiar you are with Israelite histories, Near Eastern archaeologies, and secular biblical scholarship, the richer your translations will be rendered. Don't be afraid for scripture and don't be afraid of these other books. Claim it all as your own. Doubtless, the world's best books have their flaws, but this just means that they too must be translated. You'll need to translate them so they can contribute to your own translations. Don't balk at this responsibility or hand it off to church leaders. Our minds go dark and our hearts go cold when we set this work aside. Your minds in times past have been darkened, the Lord told Joseph, because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things you have received. Our minds go dark because we've treated this responsibility lightly. We don't sit down with the scriptures and we don't study them out in our minds. The Book of Mormon is the new covenant. It is itself what God promises you. It is given to you as a Urim and Thummim, as your own personal seer stone. Look into it and learn how to see the world by its light. And as you do, you'll be shown not only how to say, but to do what the Lord requires. So let's do that. That's the important thing. How Joseph Smith translated this, not so important. What we have because of his translation is what's important. What we do with it, how we translate it into our life is what's important. Okay, so that's about it today. I hope the message you get today is that this history is really messy. 
but I think it's cool. And I think that there's some elements in here that show Joseph Smith and the Restoration in a really positive light. Don Bradley is an LDS scholar who left the church. He resigned from the church over these historical problems. He felt like Joseph Smith was a fraud and that it was all not true, and he did not want to be a part of it and resigned. He then continued to study Joseph Smith and then eventually regained a testimony of Joseph Smith and was rebaptized. And he's still doing great research, and he has a very nuanced testimony. But what he says is that the more he studies Joseph, the more pure he sees his motives, the more sincere he looks, and it's messier. Like The more you study it, the messier it gets. There's no end to the messiness. But in each instance, you see the sincerity, and you see that Joseph is having an authentic religious experience. I think Don Bradley has posted on this Ante's materialization theory. I think he does not believe that the gold plates are ancient. I'm not sure where he stands on Book of Mormon historicity, but I know that he has some very nuanced views on the Book of Mormon. He didn't come back to his old dominant narrative, fundamentalistic, literalistic testimony, but he came back into the church with this new reconstructed but very vibrant and deep testimony of the Restoration. And I'm no Don Bradley, but I look at this and I have the same feelings. Initially, it might take you to a dark place and it looks like Joseph Smith is a fraud and it looks like this whole thing is just BS. But the more you study, there's kind of some light in there. And the more you study it, the light comes out and you see that he's having an authentic religious experience and he's trying to get his people to catch that vision. Maybe he's not always doing it perfect. Greg Prince says that Joseph Smith had spiritual experience, and then he created symbols that were very effective in helping his followers have that same spiritual religious experience. And we are benefits of that today. And those symbols don't always make sense in a scientific secular world when we really shine a light on them. But that's okay. We have a beautiful religion because of it. And that's what we wanted to accomplish today. Thanks for listening to the end, and please join us next time.